What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, the changing politics of comic books from World War II to today. Jay Hoberman will explain how comics served as wartime propaganda in the 1940s, how they were condemned as causing juvenile delinquency in the 1950s, how new kinds of superheroes emerged who then conquered Hollywood, made billions for the studios at a time when America was definitely not a superhero in the world. But first, Bhaskar Sunkara, the founder of Jacobin, has become president of The Nation magazine. We'll speak with him about what independent media can do, especially during wartime. That's coming up in a minute. Independent media are the lifeblood of democracy, especially during a time of war like the present. For that, we turn to Bhaskar Sunkara, the founder of Jacobin Magazine, who has just joined The Nation Magazine as president, leading the magazine's publishing and business strategy. He's the author of a terrific book, The Socialist Manifesto. He was a columnist for The Guardian US edition. He's written for The New York Times, The Washington Post, and The Nation. We reached him today in Brooklyn, Bhaskar Sunkara, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. At The Nation, you are working with Katrina Vanden Heuvel, our publisher and editorial director, and D.D. Guttenplan, our editor. What will you be doing as president? Well, most of my function revolves around uh, business strategy, trying to boost circulation, working on our ancillary programs like uh, events, and uh, our shop and other things, and kind of just making sure we have enough funds to keep pursuing our journalism and, and all that other important, important activity. You founded Jacobin between your sophomore and junior years in college. I think that was 2010 when you were 21 years old. Jacobin now has grown to a paid circulation of nearly 70,000 with 2.6 million unique visitors per month in 2021. Jacobin publishes in five languages and also publishes the magazine Tribune based in the UK. I think everybody is wondering 
why you would leave the magazine you founded for the nation. Well, I'm not fully leaving in that I'm still going to have a role on the board of directors and, and still be around as my advice is needed and solicited. <laughs> I think that there's an exciting opportunity to help out the nation and to help put the nation on a path of even further success, in part because it's an institution that's been around since 1865. It's an institution that is very important to the American left. I think it's an institution that has the potential to help galvanize and be at the center of a new progressive movement. And I do think that we're in a very, very difficult period going forward. I mean, we're seeing the collapse of a somewhat ambitious domestic agenda of, of the Biden administration basically collapsing with, with not as much as, as we would like to show for it. We're seeing uh, very ominous signs as far as the, the polling for Republicans in midterms we're seeing a lot of politics as we, we know it, and a lot of the potential that came out of the Bernie Sanders moment in 2016 getting devolved into um, you know, a political terrain that's, that's not very fruitful or productive for the, for the left, where it, it seems to be exactly what the right wants us to be, which is engaging in a, you know, a culture war, engaging in debates through the media instead of being able to reach ordinary people with our common sense message that, you know, what's good for millionaires and billionaires is not actually good for the vast majority of, of Americans. So I think that the nation is well positioned to uh, be a part of galvanizing and coherent, cohering some sort of um, alternative agenda and, and, and resistance. You know, I think Jackman is obviously part of that too, but the nation owing to where it's politically positioned, owing to its longevity, owing to its, its success as an institution, I think will be especially important in the years to come. So the big issue for the nation and our sister publications is the role of independent media at a time when our democracy is facing such uh, great threats. And of course, when Russia, at the time when Russia has attacked Ukraine, lots of mainstream media outlets write about the threats to democracy and the war in Ukraine. Uh, TheNation.com posts new pieces daily, sometimes hourly. Right now we have a reporter in Poland at the Ukraine border, Nicholas Niarkos. But a magazine like The Nation can't match the resources of The New York Times or CNN or The Guardian when it comes to covering events like the war uh, in Ukraine. So what is the role of progressive media like the nation in this situation? A lot of what we will have to do when it comes to big international events or when it comes to, to things that do require um, multi-million dollar bureaus in different countries and, and lots of journalists on the ground to get a full picture of things uh, is to provide secondary coverage. I mean, I think that, that obviously you do journalism as you can internationally. You do your investigations. You try to pursue angles that, that might go uncovered by, by mainstream uh, journalism, bourgeois journalism. Maybe can I still use that language? Please, please. pivot now to, to mainstream journalism. <laughs> but a lot of what I think is distinct about what left-wing publications can do is to provide a broader framework, to provide context, to talk about longer-term the long array of history to talk about class, to talk about all these dynamics that that aren't necessarily going to be exposed 
by other other outlets. So I think there's there's a lot there that we could add without necessarily just duplicating or without having the pretenses of being able to cover everything in real time. Because realistically, that's that's not going to happen. I used to remember, you know, my, my background, my roots, um, still my politics are, you know, from the from the far left. So I spent a lot of time over the years reading sectarian newspapers, and sometimes you would pick up a copy of um, an old socialist newspaper. I won't name, you know, which ones, and it would be almost like reading a version of the New York Times, where they would have the pretenses that working class people are picking this up as an alternative to reading something like the times as opposed to its best, you know, as a, as a supplement, as a way to kind of decode the news a bit differently as a way to get certain views and, and perspectives. Uh, so I think in the international arena, that's really the role for our coverage. And I think uh, as far as new and original investigative content, that's really important, but any relatively small publication in terms of budget and, and, general resources, you know, it has to pick its spots, has to pick about, you know, a particular story, maybe one with a a labor orientation or one about the plight or conditions of, of domestic workers in this country or about migrants or about people butting into the, the asylum system in the U.S. or a host of other things that might go, might be less explored in um, big uh, newspapers. I mean, I think that's where, to the extent we have resources for, for investigative journalism, that's where our, our resources should be deployed. So it's just a matter of being being strategic, I guess. Sticking with the war in Ukraine for a minute, our role is to provide the larger context, the history, the long durée. What, what is your perspective on the war? Of course, the nation has been writing about NATO encirclement of Russia since it started, you know, what, 25 years ago. Now, now there's a different moment. What, what is to be done now, in your view? Well, I don't think we should be afraid or shy away from, in any way, providing context. And I think that Events and illegal, despicable actions like Putin's invasion of of Ukraine uh, don't happen in a vacuum. And I think that that there was a certain security arrangement that uh, Russian elites, ordinary Russians too, thought that they were signing up for after the collapse of the Soviet Union. We've seen the expansion already of NATO into the Baltic states. We've seen the expansion of of um of NATO into Poland and other places that Russia would it didn't have an understanding that that, that would um that would happen. Uh obviously it's complex because you know these are sovereign states that are making their own decisions about their own alliances and we don't necessarily want to subscribe to a certain version of great power politics that just says um you know these countries don't have a right to pursue their own course as nations. But we have to think about what, at least on paper, the reason for NATO's existence is. And if the reason is as a defensive military alliance, at least a nominal reason why NATO exists, then why would it pursue an expansion that makes war more likely rather than less likely? Why would it even at various moments uh, pursue the expansion of NATO into Ukraine, into Georgia, and into other states that you know Russia saw as as being um, you know security um, threats. So again, I think we could unambiguously say that 
Putin's actions in Ukraine are morally reprehensible, that the, what Russia's, the Russian military is doing in Ukraine is a crime uh, we could believe, uh, as I do, in Ukraine's right to resist uh, the Russian military, and then hope for a diplomatic uh, solution that could end the blood so- uh, shed and the, the, the suffering in Ukraine, while also providing a broader context that points a critical eye at, at NATO and the actions of the United States as well, without in any way equivocating between the two, because NATO might have created the, some of the backdrop, and the United States might have created some of the backdrop, but ultimately the responsibility uh, for the conflict most fundamentally has to be on the aggressor country, which in this case is Russia. Your last piece for Jacobin a month ago was titled The Left in Purgatory. You wrote there that socialists in America are now, quote, at the end of a period of rapid politicization and settling into one of either gradual decline or slow advance. You said socialists are now an entrenched part of mainstream of American politics and no immediate setback will relegate us to our pre-2011 state. Yet there is something dangerous about being large enough to be a political presence in parts of the country and the subculture for thousands of activists, but far too disorganized and powerless to carry out our political program. You call that, quote, the path to political self-satisfaction, a marginality that is just large enough to sustain itself, but that will never be strong enough to move beyond permanent resistance, close quote. Where does the nation fit into this picture of the left in purgatory? Well, I got to say, hearing my writing read out loud, I mean, it just like, uh, I, I should have edited that some more. I, I, I could have at least cut off at least two, three sentences off of that. Um, I thought it was great. But, uh, well, I, I, I appreciate that. Um, look, what I, what I would say is that in general, uh, the dilemma that I was trying to get at is just as simple as the left can't carry out its program. Before, the big question was, where is the American left? Why can't the American left do do anything? Whereas in that left and purgatory editorial, what I was trying to ask is, what does it mean to have a left that people can see and is visible, but that is ultimately unable to to carry out the types of of changes that can improve people's lives. And I think that's gotten us into a um, chicken and egg kind of uh, problem in that it's very hard to build a mass base if you don't have uh, real victories that you could point to and you could take credit for. uh, Because in other words, we need to show people that politics can improve their lives and that collective action is a viable route to making uh, their societies better for themselves and their, their families. At the same time, I don't want to be too dismissive of the fact that we do have groups like the Democratic Socialists of America. We do have lots of other um, important groups that are, are fighting for change and that these, these are, are, are welcome. So kind of having an awareness of, of how long we have to go, how far we have to go, and uh, also you know, some sort of optimism is, is, is what I'm gunning for. Now, where the nation fits it, I think, is um, as a publication that has a potentially massive reach. You know, it's, it's a publication that already now has a circulation around 100,000, already now reaches millions of people online, and I think is really well positioned to 
be seen and interpreted by ordinary people as their voice. And I think that that's something a little bit different than uh, what other left publications uh, can do. I think Jacobin, for instance, uh, can and is to some degree already a voice of an ideology and a voice of a program. But I think we need more venues, not just the nation, but the nation among them, that can become voices of an entire class. So I think the two can work in in tandem, but one's a much bigger and more ambitious thing. You're an immensely talented writer. I have to say, I love your book, The Socialist Manifesto. It is a joy to read. It's fun to read, which you can't say about very many manifestos. You're, You're also, of course, a talented socialist entrepreneur and institution builder. I wonder if you're going to be doing any writing for the nation in your new job as president. Well, it's not going to be a core function of my my job. Obviously, I have a great relationship with with the nation's editor. I have a great relationship with Don, um, and he's asked me to write uh, a bunch in the the past. But I would say that if I'm doing my job right, then I'll be uh, way too busy kind of doing (laughs) all the things in the background to increase the the reach and, and impact of many other nation, you know, writers. And what I kind of found, it wasn't my intent when I started Jackman or in all these years in, in publishing, but what I found was that I could discover and I could support writers and thinkers that uh, were better than, than me at writing and thinking. Um, and, but I, I did have a unique skill set that is probably a, a more useful, you know, use of my time on the, on the left, which is, figuring out how to do things like increase circulation and uh, make sure that the venue stays fresh and, and relevant, not by you know necessarily shaping the, the content itself, but kind of the box in which the content is, uh, is put. But I have full you know, confidence in the existing crew of nation writers and, and editors. So my focus is, for now, uh, definitely going to be elsewhere. And is there any chance we'll see your byline in The Guardian or, or other outlets? Yeah, I mean, I, so for now, I'm actually working on two, or I'm finishing up two books. Uh, one is A History of the Grenadian Revolution, uh, wow. which actually just yesterday had its anniversary. You know, so it, 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 it initially took place in um, March 1979. Uh, I've been interviewing and speaking to a lot of the main participants of the the revolution. My family's from the Anglophone Caribbean, from Trinidad and Tobago, so it's always been a particular point of of interest, and I spent a long time during the pandemic and afterwards um, interviewing people, going through archives, and kind of preparing, hopefully, a a short, accessible book that speaks to not just the fantastic seizure of power uh, in early stages of the, the, the revolution, and not just the very tragic demise of the revolution through infighting and then U.S. invasion, but also to the really exciting uh, programs that were experimented with, social programs, education programs, literacy programs, and also programs that I think are models of, of what even a poor and impoverished country can do with an active state as far as um, encouraging development. So I'm working on that. That's probably going to be the first to be completed. I'm just kind of in the final stages of that. And I'm working on a much longer-term project with Mike Beggs, a Jacobin editor who's at the University of Sydney in Australia, 
and Ben Burgess, a writer for both uh, The Nation and Jacobin, that is on market socialism and kind of the debates on what a feasible socialism could look like. So I think to the extent that I have time for, for writing, I'd rather focus on these kind of bigger picture, someone might say more obscure uh, topics rather than the day-to-day conjunctural topics, because I don't think I... I have the time or inclination to kind of stay in the the news cycle. And like I said, there's plenty of people who who can do that work, and my job is to just get their work out to to more people. But then again, I do think part of my my mission is to build on a generation of particularly Marxist theorists and activists. And I think for that role, um, you know, that's something I definitely want to um, continue. So, you know, as I, I was kind of stepping into a somewhat more mainstream uh, publication and role. I was thinking about the work of uh, my late mentor, uh, the Canadian um, academic, uh, Leo Panich, who's also the editor of Socialist Register, and a host of other other people. And then kind of thinking to myself that there's a lot of work in their vein and tradition that I don't want to you know, leave, uh, leave behind. So that's, that's what I'll be working on whenever I have a spare moment. Sounds great. Bhaskar Sunkara is the new president of The Nation magazine. Thank you, Bhaskar. Thanks so much for having me. Now it's time to talk about comic books. We can blame them for glorifying violence and brutality, and then we can celebrate their disruptive potential. For that, we turn to Jay Hoberman, the longtime film critic for The Village Voice. He's written many books. I think my favorite is An Army of Phantoms, American Movies and the Making of the Cold War. His most recent book is about the Marx Brothers Duck Soup in the BFI Classics series. He's written for Art Forum, the LRB, the New York Times, the New York Review, and The Nation. Last time he was here, we talked about the Aaron Sorkin film Trial of the Chicago 7. We asked, is it a great courtroom drama or boomer porn? Jim Hoberman, welcome back. Great to be with you. Well, I know that comic books and especially superheroes ended up today dominating Hollywood, making billions of dollars for the studios, but origins are always interesting. You say early comics were, were sort of like B-movies. Explain. Well, they had they were, you know, adventure-oriented. They were like B-movies or, or serials, westerns, overseas adventures. They, they basically followed a Hollywood uh, formula, but, you know, aimed basically at at kids or boys to be more specific but you know they were they were uh, certainly not uh, conceived of as, uh, as as adult entertainment and then came world war ii something i didn't know about that you write about in the nation the writer's war board what was the writer's war board well you know there was near total mobilization during during world war ii and uh, Rex Stout, one of the leading mystery writers, kind of put this together, where they figured that that comics are a um, a useful medium. And part of what they discovered comic books could convey in support of the war effort is what you call explosive violence and gross caricatures. Uh, the best example 
is that initially there was a certain amount of uh, divergence between Germans and Nazis. Uh, but, you know, as the war went on, as American casualties mounted, there was no difference. I mean, all Germans were Nazis. There were no good Germans. With Japanese, this was never even a, you know, a question. And then after the war, comic books changed. I didn't know about that you write about that got to be very big called Crime Does Not Pay. Tell us about Crime Does Not Pay. Crime Does Not Pay was the uh, the brainchild of a really fascinating character, Lev Gleason, who was a leftist, probably a communist. It's crime does not pay, but it is also identifying you know, crime with capitalism. It, it was very lurid, but it also was was quite adversarial in uh, in a way, and it was extremely popular. After the war, I mean, it wasn't kid stuff. wasn't guys running around in, in tights. What struck me reading about this in the, in the book, Pulp Empire by Paul S. Hirsch was how um, similar this was in a way to uh, the tendency in Hollywood that we call film noir. It was a uh, downbeat, disillusioned, kind of cynical tendency in American movies, which had, up until that point had been famous for their optimism. I mean, people came out of the war. I mean, particularly the guys who you know were were having to fight it, angry, cynical, disillusioned. And these comics uh, 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 spoke to that. And also, you know, the um, the other adult comics were, were romance comics, which were aimed at, at women and, and which were not Hallmark Valentines. I mean, they, they and they were definitely not intended for kids. Then I want to talk about Disney comics. I always thought of Disney comics after the war is harmless fun, but the book you wrote about for the nation, Pulp Empire by Paul Hirsch, includes a Donald Duck comic strip from 1947 titled Donald Duck's Atom Bomb, which was sort of shocking. This was not a comic book per se. It was a promotional device that was included in boxes of uh, Cheerios cereal. Uh, Donald Duck's Atom Bomb, Donald for reasons of his own, decides he's going to build a, uh, an atom bomb in his uh, a nuclear device in his backyard. And it's really crazy. You know, he throws in, you know, like uh, stray cats and lightning bolts and this, that, and the other thing. It accidentally goes off in Duckburg. And uh, the denizens of Duckburg lose their hair. Not that they even had so much to begin with. If you think about what... <laughs> So it's like, but Good anyway, <laughs> they lose their, you know, so it's topical. It's, it's, it's alluding to, you know, the, or making light of the, the fear of, uh, of radiation, which, you know, people were aware of. Uh, and then uh, at the end, you know, Donald saves the day or at least saves his own, you know, reputation or whatever by coming up by, by, by merchandising his new hair restorer. Paul Hirsch writes, it is a remarkably morbid and cynical ending, even for a character as obnoxious, vengeful, and short-tempered as Donald Duck. <laughs> Faced with a city poisoned by radiation, Donald Duck offers false hope to the survivors and then robs them. Yes. Well, one of the things that I really like about, about Hirsch's book is that, you know, he's really can get quite indignant and it's almost like a kind of a comic book history itself and i don't mean that in a negative sense i mean you know there's a hyperbolic uh, tone to it which i think you know 
suits the material. And I, I, I enjoyed that. So there you have a, you have a great example. <laughs> I should say that the, that the Disney comics, at least the, the, the Uncle Scrooge comics, although they were, had, let's, let's say, a kind of imperialist bias, which was later brilliantly explicated by uh, Dorfman and Mattelhart and How to Read Donald Duck years later, were, were really, you know, from a kid's point of view, from my point of view as a kid, were really good comics. I loved the way they were drawn and they were very funny in the characters. But these were, were only came into their own in the 50s, actually in the mid-50s, after the, uh, the, the adult comics, which is to say, you know, the horror comics, the crime comics, were driven from the newsstands and the candy stores. Well, here's what confuses me. The next chapter is a more familiar one. The panic about comic books, the violence uh, uh, causing juvenile delinquency. But what confuses me is that both the left and the right were against comic books in the mid-50s. You quote the Daily Worker denouncing comic books as, quote, a billion-dollar industry glorifying brutality, close quote. But that was, of course, also the view of J. Edgar Hoover and of the Church of England. What's going on here? The world united. Certainly, there were objectionable things in, uh, in, in comics. I mean, and Frederick Wortham, you know, the uh, psychiatrist who... Uh, was most famous for writing a book, you know, The Seduction of the Innocent, was, was a leftist, was a progressive guy. And the thing that he was most disturbed by was the racism in, in comics, particularly the, the comics that were set, you know, in the jungle. That was not particularly what upset Hoover. Or even, I think, the, the Church of England, they were upset because the comics were capable, first of all, of, of being incredibly exaggerated in their violence. And, and also, we're, we're dealing, you know, like uh, with suggestive uh, uh, women, like the fan, you know, the, 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 the guys who made the comic books really just like let their fantasies run wild, you know, in their, in their, in their portrayal of, of, uh, of, of young women. So I think the, the thing was that unlike Hollywood, comic books had no kind of internal censor. And there's something, I think, much more primal about drawing. I mean, it's much more, it's connected much more directly to, to the unconscious, to the, you know, to, to people's fantasies. And that was really what was disturbing. I should say parenthetically that uh, uh, I had a, a conversation recently with, with Art Spiegelman about, he made a connection between, you know, the kind of moral panic that, that Mao set up at the, in this school board in, in, uh, in Western Tennessee with the general, you know, like uh, how easy it is for people to get upset about comics. Mm -hmm. Also, you know, like even though th these comics weren't made for kids, kids could understand them. They're pictures. Kids know how to look at pictures. Yeah, there's a, there's a way in which comics also, you know, like are are subliterary, and this sometimes suited the government and the, with these educational comic books, you know, the propaganda comic books, they like the fact that they're, that they're, they, they, they could be seen as easy to read, but, but, you know, the fact that kids could also see them made it worse. The, the most famous one, I think is the EC comic of a baseball game that's being played with dismembered corpses and so on. And in a way it's kind of hilarious that they did this, that they turned, you know, the national, Fast time into this really ghoulish, you know, grand wignal thing. And you know, it's not, I mean, it's, it's a comic, you know, it's not 
it's not a photograph, but that made people crazy because that was, you know, like kids would, would, would see this, you know? So after the moral panic, after the congressional investigations, the mid fifties, the comic book publishers agreed to self-censorship. And this is the period when we get the return of the superheroes, especially Marvel Comics, Spider-Man and the Hulk. But these characters were different from the Superman of World War II who, you know, punched Hitler in the nose. I mean, what you got as a result of the, um, the congressional hearings and so on was the end of the adult comics. And suddenly that's when you got the Disney comics and, you know, Dell comics, Little Lulu. On the one hand, then you also got Mad Magazine on the other where there was, you know, the uh, uh, a number of the artists who had been involved in the EC horror comics went into overt and and brilliant and, and very influential social satire. You also had this sort of the, the, the canonization of Superman and Batman, you know, who were, who were very sort of chaste superheroes, you might say. And um, when Marvel introduced their new characters around 1960, 61, the Fantastic Four and Spider-Man and so on, they went for slightly unhinged or recognizably human personalities and also a degree of ambivalence. I mean, the, one of the great things was that they weren't necessarily happy. You know, Spider-Man was, was a, a, a disgruntled adolescent. So there was that. And then there was the fact that um, Marvel was employing uh, Jack Kirby, who was probably the, the, the greatest comic book artist of uh, post-war period, or certainly of the post-congressional hearings period, just, you know, very, very talented. And, and so with a combination of things, reeled in a lot of new readers, uh, which I would include my teenage self. My, my favorite character was Doctor Strange, <laughs> not Spider-Man. Okay. The 60s then turned into the 70s. We got R. Crumb. We got Art Spiegelman. Both of them love old comics, really old comics. And now we've got the Black Panther. We've got Wonder Woman. These changes seem to suggest comic books now are in the, the vanguard of cultural change. Is that the way you see it? Well, I, I see it that, that what it is is that comics are really our cultural DNA, that a lot of stuff can, can come out of them. And that with the, um, what's referred to as the, as the digital term in, in movie production, you know, that put the emphasis on, uh, on special effects, digital effects, also the need to make big budget movies universally apprehendable, not just in the United States. I mean, there was a whole dynamic, many reasons why Hollywood would have gotten into superheroes all of a sudden. And of course, drawing on, on the Marvel superheroes, but also Superman and, and, and Batman as well. And that because this became something close to uh, our official culture, you know, in the, in the official mass culture in the, in the 21st century, there was also a tendency, a kind of a backlash. Well, really, you know, they should pay attention, you know, to, uh, um, to other, you know, excluded groups and, you know, uh, women hold up half the sky. I mean, maybe it would be good to have, you know, like a incredible female superhero. And, but I think that this is kind of like, 
you could consider this almost like the lost leader, although both of these movies, of course, made, made, made money, that, that that's not what the appeal, the basic appeal of superhero movies are now. I think that in a way, these comic book movies are compensatory on a, on a cultural scale or on a national scale. I mean, all entertainment is in some respects compensatory, you know, movies particularly, in that it gives you something that you don't have usually in your daily life. It makes up for something. That's one of that's part of the appeal. It's not the only appeal, but it's certainly there. But I, I really think that that the superheroes came into their own as movie fodder uh, at a at a time when uh, uh, America was uh, realizing, you know, there was that, that brief golden moment where uh, uh, America considered itself the world's lone superpower. Right now, you know, um, that didn't save, you know, like the, the World Trade Center from from being taken out. It didn't present, you know, prevent. 15 years of, of unwinnable wars that had, you know, nothing to do with even America's perceived national interest and so on. But we could make these movies, you know, about the uh, incredible uh, super beings who flawed. They're not, they're not perfect. They're, they, they have flaws. They're, they're, they're human. And, and everybody would watch them and, and, and we would love them. I mean, this is a kind of, a uh, simplistic view of it, but I think in a, in a, in a general sense, I mean, there, there is a reason for this trend. There are reasons for this trend and the comics were there to like, it was, it was ready-made. It was ready-made for this kind of uh, spectacular uh, filmmaking. Jay Hoberman wrote for the nation about the history of comic books. It's told in the new book, Pulp Empire, The Secret History of Comic Book Imperialism by Paul S. Hirsch. You can read Jim's review at thenation.com. Jim, thanks for talking with us today. This was great. Always a pleasure. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. William Broughton is our audio editor. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.